Hello and welcome to episode number 134 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, February 10th, 2014. Well, as you all know, I'm podcasting once again after having been out of the podcasting world for quite a while. This episode, I will not feature any guests or any interviews, although I do have a couple of interviews that are still uh, legacy or archive interviews from 2011, I believe, as the previous interview with uh, Elaine Ingham was. But as you'll many of you noted, uh, that interview was full of great information and pretty timeless in a lot of ways. So I thought for this episode, I could take the time to fill the listeners in on what my status is, why, why I wasn't podcasting for so long, and uh, what the future of this podcast is. And then I'm going to share some news articles that I have with you, uh, some pretty important stuff, I think, uh, important trends in agriculture for 2014 and forward. Things are changing quickly, and I think you guys will appreciate some of the information uh, Some from, from, I think you guys will appreciate some of the information from some of these articles that I'm going to share I think it's pretty important that those of us in the sustainable, organic, permaculture, agriculture movement uh, be informed in terms of what's happening around the world and around the and around North America with ag. With that said, shortly sometime after I released episode, I believe it was 130 of the Agro Innovations podcast, that was my interview with Cliff Davis, my boss at the time at Holistic Management asked me to stop podcasting. I was fine with that, considering that I worked with HMI. And actually, at the time, I had plans to start up a podcast uh, with Holistic Management. Now, since that time, I have been laid off of my job at Holistic Management International, so I am no longer the program director there. Um, And I am currently unemployed. So that situation has been difficult in some ways and positive in other ways, like all challenging things in life. But uh, one of the good outcomes of losing my job at HMI was now I'm able to more freely podcast and continue to bring free information to the community uh, around this podcast. And so I am really happy about that development. So one of the ways that people can support the podcast now moving forward is to get on agroinnovations.com, and I now have a PayPal donate button there on the right-hand side of the screen, and it would be helpful to receive some donations from some of the listeners. In the past, I have not asked for donations from folks, uh, you know, because I haven't really needed it, and I know that other podcasts out there and other podcasters have needed people's support, and I'm sure that people who listen to this podcast listen to some of those other podcasts that need support as well. And so I was happy to not ask for donations uh, through over the course of many years, actually. But now I am in a situation where for me to be able to justify the time that it takes me to produce these podcasts and the resource as well, you know, paying for a server and a domain name and those sorts of things, Uh, but particularly the time is probably the most important thing, then I have to have some monetary revenue from the podcast somehow. And so if you are able to donate to the podcast, I would appreciate it if you do. And I will 
mention as the episodes go by that you can donate. And so if you are not able to donate now, but perhaps you will be able to in the future, uh, please keep that in mind. And certainly if you're out there struggling, as I know many people are, uh, don't feel like you need to donate to the podcast and certainly don't feel guilty about uh, listening without providing a donation. Uh, This podcast is and always will be free for you and for your listening enjoyment. And in fact, it's released under a Creative Commons license. So you can use the podcast in any way that you would like, so long as you attribute it uh, correctly and you use the same attribution share like license. Now, some folks have uh, not done that. I believe there's an interview that I did with Bill Mollison on YouTube that has gotten something like 60,000 plus views. Uh, and I don't believe that was correctly attributed. Uh, I never really followed up and came down hard on that person. But uh, I certainly would appreciate if you're going to take any of the material in the Agro Innovations podcast, just be sure to uh, give that it- attribution and re-release it under that Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. I would like to thank everyone in these past few weeks who has reached out to me and expressed gratitude and happiness that the Agro Innovations podcast is back. Uh, That encouragement really helps. A lot of people have reached out to me in different forums, Facebook, Twitter, uh, email, the comment thread for the podcast. So in fact, a couple of people have already donated to the podcast since I put that donation link up there on the page. And so I'd like to thank uh, Caitlin J and Alexander O for donating just this past week to the Agro Innovations Podcast. I can't tell you how much uh, your support means to me. Uh, When someone hands over their hard-earned money for something like the Agro Innovations Podcast, you know, that really shows that you appreciate what I'm doing here and you appreciate the information that you've gotten here. So, So I appreciate your donation and your support of this program will really help to keep it on the air. In the two years since I last published a podcast, a lot has happened, especially in the world of agriculture, uh, permaculture, and a lot is certainly happening on the front of information technology. As I mentioned in some previous podcasts, I'm definitely going to be focusing on Arduino and some of the potential applications for Arduino for permaculture. I think there are some exciting possibilities. I'm also really interested in the potential for unmanned aerial vehicles or more commonly referred to as drones and their their agricultural applications. So I will be featuring some of those topics on the Agro Innovations podcast moving forward. And if you have any suggestions for future shows, please be sure to send those in and I will certainly keep those in mind. I'm already blogging quite a bit about Arduino and applications in permaculture. If you get on the Agro Innovations blog, you can see some of that. I'm doing some development work. I'm looking to do some more software development work uh, and some hardware development work to make all this stuff open source, to make it accessible to everyone, and to make it something that will be beneficial for everyone. So if you are interested in collaborating on any of that, Uh, Already some of that collaboration is taking place. I'm working with some folks uh, via email and we're sharing swapping stories and sharing some uh, plans and schematics. We're actually to the point now where, you know, some people are further along than others. 
I am certainly able to get some sensor data off of my Arduino onto my smartphone, which is exciting and things are happening quickly. Um, you know, it will be, I think in a couple of years, this technology is going to move forward very quickly. So if you're interested in participating in that process, I'm in conversations with the folks at FarmHack, and there will be uh, an upcoming podcast on that very soon with Dorn Cox. Stay tuned and get in touch with me. Don't, don't be shy to get in touch with me directly, and let's find ways where we can collaborate. Like I said, I'm already having a lot of great conversations with some great people, and I think there's a lot of potential to do some work out there. So if you're interested in uh, pursuing that and doing some work on that, whether that be programming, documentation, uh, hardware development, the field testing, whatever that may be, uh, we can definitely use all the help that's out there. So keep that in mind. So now let me share with you some of this news that I have been looking at and putting out on my Twitter feed. That's actually a pretty good source for some good, solid information and articles. So follow me on Twitter at Agro Innovations. You'll also see a link to that on my website. Now, one of the more recent developments in the you know permaculture community and things that people are talking about and debating about is David Holmgren's Crash on Demand article, where David Holmgren, basically, if you're not familiar with David Holmgren's original, I believe it was a 2009 publication called Future Scenarios, he lays out four different scenarios based on different intensities of peak oil and climate change interacting. So basically, for the purposes of this discussion, what David Holmgren is now saying is that we are in the brown tech scenario. The brown tech scenario is the scenario where oil and fossil fuel resources decline relatively slowly. And one of the things that is causing that slow decline, according to Holmgren, is fracking and other non-traditional sources of fossil fuels like tar sands, uh, deep oil or uh, deep water wells, these types of things, shale oil. These things have all made the rate of peak oil much slower, but the rate of climate change is much a graver and more rapid than we had initially anticipated. It's much beyond some of the IPCC models so far with what we're seeing. If you want a good source on this, um, Guy McPherson's Nature Bats Last blog is, is a great place to go check out. But basically, climate change is accelerating very rapidly, peak oil more slowly. We're in the brown tech scenario. Uh, we're going to see more industrial agriculture, more massive geoengineering type schemes, and certainly uh, whether the brown tech scenario is what's going to unfold over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, certainly the powers that be are behaving as if it was, and it is in some ways a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in that context, in the context of David Holmgren's brown tech scenario, uh, he has a title in the Crash on Demand that Welcome to Brown Tech or Brown Tech is here, something to, something to that effect. I want to share with you a article from the World Future Society, which you can find at www.wfs.org. And the name of this article is Food, Fuel, and the Global Land Grab. And the article is by Lester R. Brown. 
Now, it says here that Lester R. Brown is president of Earth Policy Institute, a nonprofit interdisciplinary research organization based in Washington, D.C. And it says this article is adapted from his latest book, Full Planet, Empty Plates, The New Geopolitics of Food Scarcity. So maybe uh, if we're lucky, we can get Lester R. Brown to come on the Agro Innovations podcast and talk about some of these themes that are featured in this article. But if we can't, uh, I will share some of this with you. Lester Brown writes, Growing demand for food and fuel has put pressure on the world's agricultural lands to produce more. Now, a trend in land grabbing has emerged. As wealthy countries lease or buy farms and agribusiness in poorer countries to ensure their own future supplies. The result may be further economic disparities and even food wars. World grain and soybean prices more than doubled between 2007 and mid-2008. As food prices climbed everywhere, some exporting countries began to restrict grain shipments in an effort to limit food price inflation at home. Importing countries panicked. Some tried to negotiate long-term grain supply agreements with exporting countries, but in a seller's market, few were successful. Seemingly overnight, importing countries realized that one of their few options was to find land in other countries on which to produce food for themselves. So this sets the stage for uh, where Lester Brown is going, and he continues, And the land rush was on. Looking for land abroad is not entirely new. Empires expanded through territorial acquisitions. During the last 150 years, large-scale agricultural investments from industrial countries concentrated primarily on tropical products, such as sugarcane, tea, rubber, and bananas. What is new now is the scramble to secure land abroad for more basic food and feed crops, including wheat, rice, corn, and soybeans, and for biofuels. Let me repeat the, the list of crops that Lester Brown mentions. Wheat, rice, corn, and soybeans, and crops for biofuels. He says, these land acquisitions of the last several years, or quote-unquote land grabs, represent a new stage in the emerging geopolitics of food scarcity. They are occurring on a scale and at a pace not seen before. Now he goes on to characterize what some, what some of these countries, what is happening in some of these countries environmentally and demographically to make them so desperate to uh, engage in this land grab. He says, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, China, and India are among the countries that are leading the charge to buy or lease land abroad, either through government entities or through domestically-based agribusiness firms. Saudi Arabia's population has simply outrun its land and water resources. The country is fast losing its irrigation water and will be totally dependent on imports from the world market or overseas farming projects for its grain. South Korea imports more than 70% of its grain, and it has become a major land investor in several countries. In an attempt to acquire 940,000 acres of farmland abroad by 2018 for corn, wheat, and soybean production, the Korean government will reportedly help domestic companies lease farmland or buy stakes in agribusiness firms in countries such as Cambodia, Indonesia, and Ukraine. China is also nervous about its future supply as it faces aquifer depletion and the heavy loss of cropland to urbanization 
and industrial development. It is by far the top importer of soybeans in the world, bringing more than all other countries combined. India has also become a major player in land acquisitions. With its growing population to feed, irrigation wells are starting to go dry. So with the projected addition of 450 million people by mid-century, that may or may not happen as an aside, and the prospect of growing climate instability, India, too, is worried about future food security. And then there's a list of other countries here that are engaging in similar behavior, and I think you can understand what the patterns here are. Uh, it says Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, many of the Middle Eastern countries. I would not be surprised if uh, Japan was in the mix as well, although Japan is experiencing more of a demographic decline than a lot of these other uh, countries that are mentioned here. So then this report goes on to talk about a World Bank report uh, that identified 464 land acquisitions that were in various stages of development between October 2008 and August 2009. One of the things the article mentions is that it's, it's pretty hard to get data on what's actually going on out there, but some of that data is available. It is reported that production had begun on only one-fifth of the announced projects, partly because many deals were made by land speculators. The, offer, the report offered several other reasons for the slow start, including unrealistic objectives, price changes, inadequate infrastructure, technology, and institutions. The amount of land involved was known for only 203 of the 464 projects, yet it still came to some 140 million acres, more than is planted in corn and wheat combined in the United States. Particularly noteworthy is that of the 405 projects for which commodity information was available, 21% were slated to produce biofuels and another 21% for industrial or cash crops, such as rubber and timber. Only 37% of the projects involved food crops. Now, where is this taking place? George Schoenfeld from the Center for International Forestry Research reported that two-thirds of the area acquired was in just seven countries in Africa. Ethiopia, Ghana, Liberia, Madagascar, Mozambique, South Sudan, and Zambia. In Ethiopia, for example, an acre of land can be leased for less than a dollar a year, whereas land-scarce Asia, it can easily cost $100 or more. The second most targeted region for land grabs was Southeast Asia, including Cambodia, Laos, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Countries have also sought land in Latin America, especially in Brazil and Argentina. Unfortunately, the countries selling or leasing their land for the production of agricultural commodities to be shipped abroad are typically poor and more often than not those where hunger is chronic, such as Ethiopia and South Sudan. Both of these countries are leading recipients of food from the UN World Food Program. Some of these land acquisitions are outright purchases of land, but the overwhelming majority are long-term leases, typically 25 to 99 years. The article goes on to explain how energy policies are encouraging the acquisition of land for biofuel production, a lot of subsidies going into that, and a lot of other incentives for 
large agribusiness to produce more biofuel. Here's an interesting fact. One of the things that uh, people in the permaculture community were touting, well, certainly not everyone, but some folks were touting back in uh, probably about 2005, 2006, was this plant called Jatropha. And Jatropha is a good producer of biofuels, biodiesel apparently. Um, But it says here, the initial enthusiasm for Jatropha is fading as yields are lower than projected and the economics do not work out. Now we get to the some of the nitty-gritty of this. Massive land acquisitions raise many questions. Since productive land is not often idle in the countries where the land is being acquired, the agreements mean that many local farmers and herders will simply be displaced. Their land may be confiscated, or it may be bought from them at a low price over which they have little say, leading to public hostility that often arises in host countries. In addition, the agreements are almost always negotiated in secret. Well, that's not new. Against this backdrop, the poor can easily be forced off the land by the government. The displaced villagers will be left without land or livelihoods in a situation where agriculture has become highly mechanized and employs few people. The principal social effect of these massive land acquisitions may well be an increase in the ranks of the world's hungry. So... Here we have the brown tech scenario displacing people from their landscape as more and more industrial agriculture grows across the face of the planet uh, for these import-hungry countries so they can produce their food in Africa and uh, import it either to the Middle East or Far East Asia or wherever the destination, final destination of the commodity food might be. In a landmark article on African land grabs in The Observer, John Vidal quotes Niikwa Ochala, an Ethiopian from the Gambela region. The foreign companies are arriving in large numbers, depriving people of land that they have used for centuries. There is no consultation with the indigenous population. The deals are done secretly. The only thing the local people see is people coming with lots of tractors to invade their lands. Referring to his own village, where an Indian corporation is taking over, Ochala says, their land has been compulsorily taken and they have been given no compensation. People cannot believe what is happening. Hostility of local people to land grabs is the rule, not the exception. China, for example, signed an agreement to expand production rapidly to 100,000 tons of corn and soybeans by 2015. But in 2012, it anticipated producing only 9,000 tons, putting it far behind schedule. Land acquisitions, whether to produce food, biofuels, or other crops, raise questions about who will benefit. Even if some of these projects can dramatically boost land productivity, will local people gain from this? When virtually all of the inputs, the farm equipment, the fertilizer, the pesticides, the seeds are brought in from abroad and all the output is shipped out of the country, this contributes little to the local economy and nothing to the local food supply. These land grabs are benefiting the rich at the expense of the poor. Boy, Lester Brown really gets it. Uh, he really lays it out in terms of what's happening and how's this, how this is impacting people. One of the most difficult variables to evaluate is political stability in the countries where land acquisitions are occurring. 
this may be one of the weakest links in this plan that these countries have to export all these commodities from these far off places. The, the article continues to say, few things are more likely to fuel insurgencies than taking land away from the people. Agricultural equipment is easily sabotaged. If ripe fields of grain are torched, they burn quickly. In Ethiopia, local opposition to land grabs appears to be escalating from protest to violence. In late April 2012, gunmen in the Gambela region attacked workers on land acquired by Saudi billionaire Mohammed al-Amadi for rice production. They reportedly killed five workers and wounded nine others. And one of the things that the article mentions and that I should repeat because I think it's worth repeating is that these these projects are getting stalled because a lot of the times these places are in the middle of nowhere. There's no irrigation. In some cases, there's no roads. Uh, there certainly uh, is probably not electricity in a lot of these places. There's probably no well development. And the information that's available on subterranean water sources, uh, underground hydrology, these types of things may not be available. Uh, certainly countries that have done agricultural development in the United States have gotten spoiled because the USGS has done so much of that work and it's all available online. Uh, that is not the case in many of these developing countries. And it remains to be seen whether in the face of, as the article says, uh, outright sabotage and revolt on the part of the local people and the fact that none of this infrastructure for this industrial agriculture exists in a lot of these places where these land leases are being acquired, um, it remains to be seen whether any of these projects will actually be successful. And as we've already seen, the Chinese are having trouble uh, and they're way behind schedule on reaching some of their yield targets. So now let me share with you another conundrum that the Brown Tech Industrial Agricultural Model faces as it tries to conquer the world. This is an article uh, from The Guardian, and it's Earth Insight by Nafiz Ahmed. It says here, Dr. Nafiz Ahmed is Executive Director of the Institute for Policy Research and Development and author of A User's Guide to the Crisis of Civilization and How to Save It, among other books. He's on Twitter. He's really great. He writes some really great articles on peak oil. Um, and let me share this article with you all. The, t the headline is Dramatic Decline in Industrial Agriculture Could Herald Peak Food. Most conventional yield projection models are oblivious to the real world, say U.S. researchers. Industrial agriculture could be hitting fundamental limits in its capacity to produce sufficient crops to feed an expanding global population, according to new research published in Nature Communications. The study by scientists at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln argues that there have been abrupt declines or plateaus in the rate of production of major crops, which undermine optimistic projections of constantly increasing crop yields. As much as 31% of total global rice, wheat, and maize production has experienced yield plateaus or abrupt decreases in yield gain, including rice in Eastern Asia and wheat in Northwest Europe. The declines in plateaus in production have become prevalent despite increasing investment in agriculture, which could mean that maximum potential yields under the industrial model of agribusiness have already occurred. 
Crop yields in major cereal-producing regions have not increased for long periods of time, following an earlier period of steady linear increase. Now let's get to the heart of, of what this paper is actually saying. The paper makes for ominous reading. Production levels have already flattened out, with no case of, re of a return to the previous rising yield trend for key regions amounting to 33% of global yield and 27% of global wheat production. The U.S. researchers conclude that these yield plateaus could be explained by the inference that average farm yields approach a biophysical yield ceiling for the crop in question, which is determined by its yield potential in the regions where the crop is produced. They wrote, We found widespread deceleration in the relative rate of increase of average yields of the major cereal crops during the 1990-2010 to 2010 period in countries with the greatest production of these crops, and strong evidence of yield plateaus or an, or an abrupt drop in rate of yield gain in 44% of the cases, which together account for 31% of total global rice, wheat, and maize production. Although agricultural investment in China increased threefold from 1981 to 2000, rates of increase for wheat yields have remained constant, decreased by 64% for maize, and are negligible in rice. So, agricultural investment in China increased threefold over the 20-year or 19-year period from 1981 to 2000. A threefold increase in investment, yet yields have remained constant. So that type of investment is required just to keep yields constant for wheat and to slow the decrease in maize yields by 64%. So what this means is in some cases, uh, yield may be increasing, but the rate of increase has decreased by so much. Now, just to get a little bit of an increase in maize production, the Chinese have to invest three times that much. Similarly, the rate of maize yield has remained largely flat despite a 58% investment increase over the same period. This is a classic case of the law of diminishing returns. I will link to uh, an article. There, um, I presume there's an article in Wikipedia on diminishing returns. If you don't understand what diminishing returns are, you need to uh, read up about it because it is going to be the thing that determines uh, a lot of what happens in agriculture and energy development in the coming years. So this article uh, says, the study criticizes most other yield projection models which predict compound or exponential production increases over coming years and decades, even though these, quote, do not occur in the real world, unquote. Such growth rates are not feasible over the long term because average farm yields eventually approach a yield potential ceiling determined by biophysical limits on crop growth rates and yield. And then it goes on to say that, you know, we can do certain things uh, like manage our fertilizers better. We all who listen to this podcast know this. We can cut our food waste by 10% and save a billion tons of food. Um, we can use water more efficiently. We know all that and have been talking about ways to do all that, although it remains to be seen whether that can be done using this brown tech model of industrial agricultural development. So those were two really great articles that I wanted to share with you guys. 
Now I want to, before, I want to wrap this up with an article that I wrote on the Agro Innovations uh, blog. And you can find that article. Uh, it's called, What is the Agro Collapse? It's dated January 14th, 2013. Before I do that, I want to share some context information for you uh, so that we can get a sense of what we are dealing with and what I'm talking about when I talk about agro collapse <clears throat> and what, uh, you know, what, what the farm economy in the United States really looks like because we need to be realistic about this and we need to be realistic about what it's going to take to confront this. My article says, small and medium-sized agricultural producers in the United States face a number of challenges that are not easily overcome. Economies of scale and the structures associated with industrial agriculture present an enormous challenge for small producers. Now, here's an area that I know very well. Central New Mexico offers an interesting case study for the structure of the U.S. farm economy. According to the 2007 USDA Agriculture Census, there are 6,807 farms in this part of the state. 39% of these farms are between 1 and 9 acres, and 63% are less than 50 acres in size. So we have a vast majority of these farms being small farms. 694 farms, 11% of the total, accounted for 694 million of total sales of agricultural products. That's well over 90% of total farm revenue uh, that came out of this part of the country in this part of New Mexico, and it's being accounted for by 11% of the total. 3,934 farms, or 65% of the region's total, had a gross revenue of less than $10,000. These figures show that although small farmers represent a majority of landholders in the region, and probably throughout the country, they are woefully underrepresented in the marketplace, so much so that only 9.4 million of total farm sales came from farms with under $10,000 in total aggregate revenue which is 1% of total farm sales for the region. While these specific figures may vary from one region to the next, the distribution of production is the same over the entire United States. Industrial agriculture accounts for the vast majority of the nation's food supply. And then I go on to say how uh, most enterprises operating below $250,000 in gross revenue tend not to be profitable. So now that we know what the structure of the food supply in the United States is, and I know you all probably know that, but when you actually put some numbers behind it uh, for a specific region of the country, the numbers are just staggering. So now I will share with you as I conclude this article uh, entitled, What is the Agro Collapse from January 14 of 2013? What really set me forward on the concept of agro collapse was when I attended a sustainable agriculture conference in November of 2012. As is often the case at these events, oh, and by the way, that uh, the name of that sustainable agriculture conference was the Kavira Coalition Conference in November of 2012. Um, that was not this past conference, but the conference before that, and that was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Kavira generally brings a lot of uh, ranching, uh, cattle, livestock-type people but there are some crop farmers that show up to that as well. The topic was how to feed 9 billion people. The agenda was surprisingly tame. Soil ecology, improved grazing management, plant breeding, 
fruit tree production, and the like. Few of the presenters addressed the really tough questions, like what happens to sustainable agriculture as fossil fuel depletion continues? Why aren't we feeding 100 million people using these techniques that are on display now instead of talking about 9 billion people? How can we really do any of the things we're talking about on the scale we're imagining when most of the land is in the hands of the top 1%? None of these questions were on the agenda. As the conference progressed, I began in private conversations to press people about my concerns. Why aren't we talking about these things? After all of our technical achievements over the years, why aren't we providing for a greater portion of the nation's food supply? Do we really believe that we'll just gradually win because our way is better and we will replace industrial agriculture with sustainable agriculture the same way one replaces an old pair of shoes with a new pair? Inevitably, the response that I got was generally the same. Sooner or later, the industrial agricultural model is going to collapse. And be replaced by what, I said, by us, who barely have the manpower and the land to feed 30 million people? And what will happen to our movement as the beating heart of the country's food supply implodes? Will we even have the fuel to get our products to market? Are we preparing ourselves for the collapse of the industrial food system so that our own systems have the resilience to continue during the collapse of the industrial food model and beyond? These questions, I came to realize, are the questions of the agro-collapse. It is frightening and alarming that the general public is not grappling with the great dilemmas of our time. It is downright apocalyptic that even the sustainable agriculture community is not able to do so. Agro-collapse is a process underway in the real world, one that runs parallel to the slow and stepwise decline of industrial civilization as it slides down the slope of energy descent. Agro-collapse is not a simultaneous global catastrophe, and it is certainly not something that occurs in isolation from the many other social, economic, political, and natural forces that shape our world, as we have seen in uh, the two previous articles that I just shared with you. It is driven by uh, external forces like financial collapse, peak oil, climate change, war, and social revolution. Therefore, much like climate change and peak oil, it impacts different groups differently at different times. Some may benefit, at least temporarily, from its effects. Just as oil companies benefit from price spikes associated with peak production and hedge funds benefits from rampant speculation and volatility in collapsing financial markets, so too do industrial agricultural producers benefit from high commodity prices resulting from similar phenomenon. Others may be devastated by its effect like the rancher or pastoralist who is forced to cull and destock the herd as a result of climate disruption and drought. And by the way, uh, there are articles coming out now that the uh, herd size, the, the size of the cattle herd in the United States is at, I believe it's a 60-year low. It could be a 40-year low. You, you may want to check that. Uh, but it's, it's, at an, it's at a low that it has not been at in a long time. And that's uh, in part because of drought, in large part because of drought and market forces. The, the pace of agro-collapse and collapse in general will be tempered by global connectivity and massive investments in maintaining the status quo. Many have argued that the former is a vulnerability of the current system, but in fact, global connectivity has acted as a buffer against localized collapse. 
After a catastrophic earthquake in Haiti, aid poured into the country, unevenly and marred by bungling and corruption, to be sure, but the flow of resources certainly helped to mitigate the worst effects of the disaster. The case is similar around the world. A desert community imports fossil fuels to run electric pumps during years of drought, Phoenix. Refugees of seasonal floods are provided with tents, foods, and medicine, Staten Island. Manufactured goods, energy, and human resources move around the world at amazing speeds and with incredible efficiency. Thus, the pace of collapse is slow and uneven, straining our resources, which spurs our descent, but never quite resulting in immediate and global Armageddon. What will you do about the agro-collapse? What will we do to scale up the practices of sustainable agriculture? Those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. I think a lot of it comes down to economics. I will focus a lot on the economics of permaculture moving forward. Uh, If we cannot figure out a way to not only, I think, invent a new economics, but I think that you know some of the tools of traditional economics are good yardsticks for people to measure uh, the sustainability of their operation. And to the extent that we can generate yields, revenue, resource from the work that we do, that is what will make us successful. That is what will make it possible for us to scale up. We need to be looking for resource anywhere and everywhere that we can find it. And uh, we need to be making an economic case for permaculture to farmers and ranchers around the world and around the country so that they can apply these techniques with the belief and the confidence that they will be able to take care of their family and prosper in the process. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I should mention that the release schedule for this podcast will probably be twice a month moving forward. Uh, I I just can't do the uh, four times a month or once a week schedule anymore. I would like to, but I can't. Uh, If the donations kick up and I get a lot of uh, donations coming in, I may consider that. But for the time being, um, I'm going to keep it at two podcasts a month. I'll try to release some kind of more formal release schedule and stick to that. I'm not going to do that today. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast under, are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. I will post links to all the articles in the show notes for this episode at agroinnovations.com. Uh, so you can access the articles that I shared with you. I hope that uh, they gave you some uh, a broader perspective on what's happening in agriculture around the world and around the country. For the next episode of the podcast, we will feature holistic me- uh, holistic management practitioner Walt Davis from Oklahoma. Uh, as always, Walt is full of great wisdom and insight. So for those of you who like Walt Davis, be sure to stay tuned into the Agro Innovations podcast. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.